we shall get started then. It's uh, Zechariah 9. And we covered the first eight verses last week. These are the... You put it uh, together, you have the two conquerors in chapter 9. In the first eight verses is the conqueror that was used for judgment against the surrounding nations of Israel. And that conqueror was Alexander the Great. And it's prophesied 200 years before it happened. And, uh, of course, uh, it was Syria, which is Hamath, and uh, Damascus, and he conquered that. Historically, we know that. And then went on down to Tyre and Sidon. Uh, definitely wickedness there involved in uh, very worldly cities and nothing was going to destroy them as far as they were concerned and of course we know we went over the details of how God over a few hundred years used different conquerors and finally Alexander the Great to uh, bring Tyre down to really nothing and then you had uh, not only the Phoenician area there the, the shipbuilders and uh, you went further down south, and you'd have the Philistines, and that's where you have Gaza and Ekron and Ashkelon, all those uh, cities that were significant. And Alexander the Great uh, brought destruction to them all the way on down through there. Then he went on up to uh, Jerusalem, and that's where the destroying stopped as the priest met him out there at uh, gates and uh, he decided not to do anything to Israel marches on down to Egypt and does some destruction there and uh, there we have it God used a conqueror to do what he needed to do with those nations because they had to be judged because they were wicked and evil and they were people who had always constantly given trouble to Israel and so that's the first conqueror, which in history we know as Alexander the Great. And uh, we know that he came back through that area. And uh, that's what verse 8 says, I'll camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. And that's where we left off. Uh, he did return and came back through there. And um, he really had conquered the world as as it was at that time. And uh, God has a plan in history. And He's really showing there that this conqueror, by using Alexander the Great, is a picture of the conqueror who is to come, which is uh, the Messiah. So uh, God is going to use him to uh, remove sin and give salvation to the nation. The program that God had always had in mind was never forfeited. And uh, that's what we see here in this chapter. It shifts when we get into, at the end of verse 8 and on into 9. And, and what we see is Jesus is going to come. And number one, he's going to judge the ungodly. And of course, the picture that we saw in the first eight verses with judgment. Number two, he's going to save. His people, 9 through 17. And the uh, first part of Zechariah came to pass. And we know historically that happened. If that happened then, then how can we doubt the next part, which is Christ 
coming back being the ultimate conqueror. And uh, I, I think, like I said, I think it's one of the greatest proofs of Scripture when you see those first eight verses in Zechariah 9. And, and you read that and you know it that it's beforehand and it's told in detail and there are other passages in Scripture in Isaiah and Ezekiel that get down to the very de- detail of how Tyre would be destroyed, for instance. Tyre didn't think it would ever be destroyed. It's a great city of the world. And so this proves that what God said He will do. He did it. And uh, so He uses pagans. He uses pagan humans to judge nations. And uh, He uses another conqueror, Christ, to save people. So here we are in the middle of verse 8. And it says, And no oppressor will pass over them anymore. For now I have seen with my eyes. Now there he's saying, okay, Alexander the Great passed over them, didn't uh, conquer them, didn't uh, cause any kind of battles or anything there in Jerusalem and in Israel there. Um, And it says what's really interesting, no oppressor will pass over them anymore. And you you get to that, wait a minute. Uh, They had oppression because they continue to have the, during the intertestamental period, and that's kind of where we're getting close to at the time of the prophecy of Zechariah. It actually is at that time period after the time of Zechariah. He's around 500. gets about 400. That's the last we hear of the Word of God uh, in prophecy until, uh, of course, Christ. But he, uh, and, so, and then the Romans, they were oppressors. So you say, what's going on here? What he's doing is that he uses Alexander the Great to show there is a conqueror. I've got one though coming. I, I've proven you. You can trust in me. And so here we are. And what he's going to do now is show the first coming of Christ. And it's going to bleed into the second coming. So we, we look at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a coat, the foal of a donkey. Stop there. That's that uh, verse that we're all familiar with. Palm Sunday, right? comes right out of the Gospels. And here it is, right in Zechariah. And of course, when the Gospel writers pick up on that, they realized that this was said like 500 years beforehand. And there he is. And so they took it right out of Zechariah, uh, being inspired. Well, we have a word with the Lord before we start. Father, we thank you for who you are and what uh, you have done for us. You are certainly gracious, and we desire to honor you. And may your word be able to speak to us tonight in a little more thorough way that we would uh, be able to know You. And that's really what You want us to do, to know You and Your very character, uh, who You are, and what Your promises are and how they're fulfilled. In Jesus' name, Amen. I like that the Israelites didn't do anything for themselves. They you know, if you have enemies, you know, they're ready for you to respond back. You know, they kind of poke and tab at you, you know, and you kind of, ooh, and they can tell you don't like it. I love it. The guy back behind you is the one that's coming 
championship. And they're focused in. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, 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 they, could, they could really do anything about this guy, but his enemies, somebody else came back behind and got him. Alexander the Great was like, oh, okay. It's just, I, I think that's who the, the Lord works like that a lot with us, if we recognize it or not. Yep. The sources are That's different right. than ours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, there's usually nothing you can do about it. <laughs> yeah, you're just sitting there like that. And That's somebody, when you get your best lessons yeah. when you're sitting there and you're thinking, I'm I, done. I, 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 I got, got nothing. nothing. Yeah. Just I being got, obedient, trusting. Yeah. Well, that's what he's going to prove That's you. what it's about. Yeah, I'm going to show you something. This is how I operate outside of man's focus. Yeah. Well, that's how he, he started right off in the mm -hmm. first chapter of Zechariah. And he's talking about just trust me, obey me. It's, it's as simple as that. And so here he says, "Here's what I want to do." And uh, you know, uh, how can you argue with some somebody who tells something that's going to happen years before anybody's ever even born to do that, and it comes true? Uh, when the divine conqueror comes, though, and he comes in his second coming, there will be no more oppression on them. They, uh, of course, they still have it today, and they'll have it right up to the time Christ comes. So he, he's talking. You get second coming and first coming in this. In matter of fact, all the Old Testament, and it's rather. I think it's a little bit hard to understand sometimes because the first coming and the second coming kind of just go together a lot. You guys ever notice that? It sounds like okay. That's when he first came. But he doesn't. He didn't come to judge at that time. He came to show who he was. He came to save. Second time he will judge, but he'll also save again. So, that you know, that this that's why this would be a little difficult if one is looking at in a time signature here. All of this was two hundred years after Zechariah, which was three hundred years before this, and such forth. And it wasn't like they were talking about a time that these people. Right. Even with Alexander the Great, they would never see that. <laughs> but they have something to look to. And this is why this was confusing whenever Jesus came the first time. People recognized that He's the Messiah. And that's why they would think that this is it. He is the King. He's taking over now. But remember, in the New Testament teaches the uh, mystery. Um, you know the the time whenever it, of the church, it in a sense it it looks like okay uh, as the church is getting ready to start, and that the Hebrew age is getting finished there, that this goes right on in and and straight on out for the kingdom from here to come, but that's not the case. And it confuses people. It's just like a gap, you know. Uh, but Paul wrote about that in uh, in Ephesians and throughout throughout the New Testament epistles, and it, it makes sense to us now. So he he starts now talking about nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. First thing we're going to look at is the character of this conqueror. We just looked at the conqueror Alexander the Great. Now we look at the character of of Christ. And so we have this background of this invincible marching army of the Greeks, of Alexander the Great, and he inspires fear, and he inspires dread, 
when he comes to conquer nations. Um, but when Christ comes back, there's no fear, there's no dread for the people that know him. There's no shaking, there's no quaking. He inspires praise and, and peace. You know, he's a different kind of conqueror, isn't he? But for those who do not know him, yes, there should be a fear, uh, dread, but they, at the very moment that he comes back, I guess, they'll be trying to hide under the rocks, right? But uh, the one that comes back is not a foreign tyrant here. It's Israel's own king. He's the king. And he's being presented right here, right off the bat. He's not cruel. He's not oppressive. Alexander the Great could have been taken that way. Other great leaders. But he is righteous. And so we look at here, and he's, he starts right off with, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Uh, he's saying, get ecstatic. <laughs> get charged up. Get happy. Right? Uh, why? Because there are four elements to his character here. This is why you should rejoice. And you see right off the bat, when he says, O daughter of Zion, he's talking about Israel and the nation that he's trying to um, really build up. Remember through Zechariah, it's really about encouragement to the people to finish their work and everything. And here they get a great prophecy again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. <clears throat> and then he says this. Here's the first part of the character. Behold your what? King. Your king is coming to you. Behold your king. Uh, Israel's king. The promised seed of David. The Messiah. The one who is to reign. The one whom Isaiah said, Unto us a child is born, and to unto us a child is given. talks about the government in that section. The government shall be on his shoulders. He's the king. It was announced at his birth, right? And, of course, we think of, uh, like, to Mary. He, he's he's going to be the king. So, And it was announced at his death. It was uh, put on that uh, that placard. You remember? the king of the Jews. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Romans put that there. So there, there's the, But it is true. He, he, he was the king. Um, they though they said it in jest. They, they despised that at that time. <laughs> the they Jews yeah. really hated did, that. Yeah. So the Romans, just to make them more mad, put that on there. So there, there you go. He is the king. He is a, a royalty is his character. So he starts off with that. That's reason to rejoice and shout, isn't it? Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. You're talking about giving hope here to these people who had been kind of downcast and just didn't things like... uh, They weren't thinking that things were going to come together too good. So it says that he's just or he is righteous. Uh, His character is kingly or royal, right? Also, his character is righteous. He's a king who is just. Uh, Back that up and start thinking about some other great leaders and kings and such, or even Alexander the Great. Um, How just was he? About the way that best humans could do. He deals just. He deals righteously. Won't it be a, uh, a great time in 
the kingdom to come, to have a world where all the decisions are made by one who is absolutely righteous, and he won't have a Nancy Pelosi <laughs> going up against. Sorry about that. Oh, damn there. <laughs> Nobody will be telling him what to do, and if they do, that will stop real quick, won't it? In total control, but absolutely just and righteous. <laughs> That's right. He rules with a rod of iron. So a king who is righteous, and the next phrase is he's endowed with salvation. He's a savior. He's redeeming. Uh, what the angels say when he was born, thou shalt call his name Jesus, which means Savior. We're getting this 500 years before Christ. Now, there have already been prophecies all throughout the whole Bible up to this point. Zechariah just adds to it a little bit more, doesn't he? Uh, not only about the birth here, but really we're talking about whenever he comes into Jerusalem. And you remember, Alexander the Great came into Jerusalem. But here is the king, the true king that comes well, in. Zechariah is saying this. Do those people think they need salvation? Because the people that Jesus came to didn't think they needed salvation. They just needed somebody over them to, to feed them just and a, take a, care a of them. A big leader, a, a big yeah, a prophet. Yeah. Right. Like a political way. Right. It was all political. Right. Yeah. So when it says he'll be endowed with salvation, what does that even mean to these people? Does this, these, these people back at this time, are they thinking saved from their circumstances? Uh, for the most part, that's the way humans usually think. Uh, now, uh, somebody like a Zechariah would, would have a, a pretty good idea well, that God's definitely as he's, as he's spoken all the way through this. <laughs> yeah, and he's, he's got a higher view than all these people do, yeah. Yeah, and to be saved from their sins is, you know, he's been talking about that, and he will talk more well, about that as he goes on. If that's a specific word that implies salvation, as in redeemed, or yeah, that's that's really what it means. It's uh, uh, of course Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua, right? Jesus. It means, and it means Savior. Um, it means to uh, to redeem. That that would be the idea of it. Like what she's saying, but, because they're so oppressed at that time, could they even think that high? Right. Could, could they, they have think that? about their sin and their? I mean, because that's all taken care of with a sacrifice anyway. So yeah. you know, they don't need a savior. As always, I'd say there's a remnant there are, that are getting that as Zechariah, and especially as Zechariah goes through here. Of course, he's saying in a future sense, but it also means something right there, right now, to those people. It wasn't that he was saying, hey, this doesn't mean anything to you guys, but later on, there is hope. You know? <laughs> Thanks for the encouragement. <laughs> um, but uh, he's going to save people from their sin. We need a Savior, don't we? Yep. You know, we need that. We need somebody to save us from our sins. And so Alexander was no Savior. Uh, he wasn't even righteous. He was a, a puny king if you compare him to Christ. Right, yeah. it, but he's considered one of the the elite he's, of all history. Him great. Yeah. So you have a king, or think of royalty. You have one who's just or righteous, 
here you have he's a savior and save them from their sins and what the depth of that was we uh, you know you'd like to think that some of them grasped some of that they they really needed that internally uh, and that's why Zechariah is is writing this he you know this is about it's about salvation the one they get salvation from is Christ even at that time Christ saved uh, he saved people in the Old Testament time period like he does now, but they had to look forward to the Messiah coming and they had to look for that uh, taking away the sin. Didn't understand all that. We have a clearer look if we look back though, don't we? Uh, So, what do you have? King, he's just, he's Savior. And the next one, he is humble. Humble and mounted on a donkey even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Um, you want to Luke? Yeah, when you think of Jesus being humble, he was uh, in every way that he was born. When he came to this earth, it was by didn't look like royalty, did it? It was as humble as can be, and all through his ministry, by humble means. Matter of fact, in, in the Luke 9.58, which we've been doing on the Sundays, Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't even own his own home. <laughs> he had no home. Really, um, he had a headquarters where he was out, but you know, as he did ministry, uh, anybody that was going to follow him, they got to realize that here's the cost it's going to be. And uh, so, you know, he wasn't like a rich man as far as having uh, money and a lot of belongings. As a matter of fact, when he died, they were uh, they took his robe, and that that was really basically it. The clothes that he had on his back was what he what he had. So, um, you know. You think in this condition, in this lowly condition, uh, meek in that way, um, you know, there's a suffering that he went through. It's very meek that first time that he came. Now, in Israel's history, if you were to look back at it, it would have been uh, very common back many, many years ago, before the time of Solomon, it was respectable to ride around on a donkey. Uh, but when Solomon came, he introduced horses. And that meant power, didn't it? Uh, Solomon brought into Israel horses. He had a stable. That stable it still exists today. You, if you went to Israel, you, they, you could take a trip to Solomon's stables. It's, there's like a shelf that overlooks the Megiddo area. And that Megiddo area is that great big plain Extending out where you could have the armies of the world face each other. And it's a beautiful place, but it overlooked that valley. That's where the stables are to this day. Um, They're massive stables. And he had 30,000 horses in his private group of horses. Um, So he introduced it in there, and by that time they became very popular. A lot of people had horses then. It was uh, important. Important people rode horses. No more were you important if you rode a donkey. And so uh, the donkey kind of lost its dignity. (laughs) 
So you were really admitting your poverty if you were riding on a donkey and not on a horse. Alexander the Great didn't come in riding on a donkey, did he? He rode a valiant steed, right, as he came in there. Uh, go to Jeremiah 17.25. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. The horses when they came in. Yep. Of course, Jesus comes in on the donkey in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So who is this? This is the great king. Oops. Jeremiah 17.25. Then there will come in through the gates of this city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this city will be inhabited forever. There it's um, speaking of horses and you know the, the royalty there. The horses were all there. Right, yeah. That was prophecy. During the, 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 well, this is the time of Jeremiah, yeah. which would be after Solomon's time. So, you know, there, you know, people are really thinking that, oh, you know, this is, this is quite the royalty. This is a big deal, right? Wasn't that part of the no-nos that Solomon did, amassing all those horses? He wasn't supposed to do that. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Because that's what all the other nations did. They, they depended on power. It's, uh, is it wrong to have a horse? Not really, but well, what was he trusting in? Yeah, I mean that's quite a, that's a lot. <laughs> he owned every. It's like he owned everything, anything that he wanted. His daughter he could, could get. Ask, his daughter could ask for a horse; it'd been okay. <laughs> you know, like, oh, little girl, she probably got her pony. but not. No, no, he was trying to show uh-uh. his, his wealth. Yeah, yeah. extreme. Yeah. So let's go to Matthew twenty-one. Matthew really picked up on this. Uh, verse 1, when they had approached Jerusalem, he and the disciples, Jesus, had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went, did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid the coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Very remarkable, isn't it? This And where the setting is in Zechariah, and this is what I found interesting, I was reading through this, oh, this is where this famous passage is located. And it's just right after we have seen Alexander the Great, who would have been riding on horses and all of his men. And here's Jesus showing that he's the king when he comes in to proclaim himself, he's really introducing himself on that day. By the way, that was the um, as the week started for the Passover. And it was before uh, the Passover, actually. And he's introduced to the, all the people there. And there's, why are they doing the, the palm branches and everything? Because they think this is it. 
This is finally here. He's our king. So they know this passage in Zechariah. Yeah. yeah this is the that would have come to them. Yeah. This is it. And behold, your king is coming to you. And there it is, riding right on into Jerusalem. And then people saw what he really meant. And all of a sudden, about four days later, some of those same people who were saying, what were they saying? Hosanna to the son of David. They're saying, crucify him. So, anyway, it's uh, fascinating as you take this and know that this is like a prophecy that has come true at that point in time. Really interesting. Um, so, um, he's a king riding on a donkey. Prophecy fulfilled. Zechariah tells it right down to the detail. Well, we're getting a lot of prophecy that really has already come true in this chapter. Here we are. We've covered nine verses. Boom, boom, boom. Each verse like I said, I think prophecy is one of the best apologetics for the Bible. And there's certain chapters that stick out, and this one right here is right near the top as far as giving proof. There are many other ones, just one after another, but I think that's rather incredible that, uh, that brings it up. So, there is the uh, character of the conqueror. He's a king who is just. He's a Savior. He's not just a king, but He's a Savior. And He's humble. And that's something that kings aren't. So there we go. He's definitely different, isn't He? And now we go into the conquest of the conqueror. That's 10 through 15. Here we go. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. And the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. This very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you, for I will bend Judah as my bow, I will fill the bow with Ephraim, and I'll stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. And I will make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. And the Lord God will blow the trumpet, and he will march in the storm winds of the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. And they will devour and trample on the sling stones, and they will drink and be boisterous as with wine, and they will be filled like a sacrificial basin, drenched like the corners of the altar. Okay, that's the second spot. We've, we've just seen the character of the king, or this conqueror. Now we get the conquest of it. And it's interesting, most of it is in the future, future to us. But there are some things here that will happen after the time that Zechariah gave that prophecy within uh, about 400 years from there, something in that nature. So we, we move from the first coming of Christ, no doubt, verse 9 is the first coming, right? That's when he presented himself as king, and then of course that week he was crucified. Um, we have a gap, like I was mentioning earlier. Uh, yeah, 
How can the Old Testament do this? Jump from one to the other. Well, it's simple. The Old Testament writers didn't see the church age, so they saw it all as one time. And that's the way that most people do, and that's why um, they saw the king coming, offering the kingdom, and setting him up. The church is a mystery. Paul says that a mystery which has been revealed to me, which was hidden in the past. And that's really what a mystery is, mysterion. Something that was hidden before that is now revealed. And so the apostles, they didn't catch it. Uh, the great religious leaders of the day didn't catch it. But it's kind of interesting. Um, it does make an impact as we look at it. We just take it for granted. But what Zechariah is moving it to is to the glory and the exaltation of the second coming. Even though he has presented some of the first coming. So what he's saying here in verse 10, I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim. What do you think that means? The chariot. What's a chariot? What does it symbolize? What's that? Power. Power. Yeah, and the more chariots you have, the more power you have. <clears throat> what do you do with that power? Well, you go and trample over people, right? You use it for war. Uh, horses were uh, definitely instruments of war, as he, as he mentions here. So with that power, you can win wars, and that's what they did. And what he's saying here is, I'm going to bring an end to war. Um, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. He won't need it anymore. And the bow of war will be cut off. There will be peace, is really what he's saying. There's going to be a time when there's finally going to be peace. Okay, mine says, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He who? This is our Messiah. Okay. This is the second coming here. And and you're right, that's what, what it is. If there's not going to be war, there's going to be peace. And not only is it going to be peace to Jerusalem, but peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. We're talking about over the whole world. And nobody's ever had that kind of kingdom before, even though there were some rulers who had empires, but this is ruling the whole world. Go to Psalm 72.8. They have peace to look forward to. One day, wars and wars and wars, Always have been wars. If you have mankind around, you have wars. Now they're not converted. Even when they're converted. Disagreements going on. Seventy-two eight. This was a, 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 a prophecy that was done in the Psalms. It's Solomon, so you could probably say about nine hundred years or somewhere around that area that he says this. May he also rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Whenever they said the river, uh, that is the great river Euphrates. You're talking about from the east all the way, all, the, all over the world. It's, it's stretching it out and saying he's going to rule over the world. That's the idea. And that's right there. We can see it. that was written in that kind of language even way back then. Go to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. This is what God's people have always looked for. We still are looking for it. And He will judge 
between the nations, and he will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and they never again will learn war. The end of wars. That has never been like that, has it? And that is right out of Isaiah. What a promise there. Isaiah has a lot of judgment chapters to follow, but in this early chapter and going on, he's talking uh, about peace there. Go to chapter 9, 5 through 7. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Sound, sound familiar? And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, which we've already talked about in Zechariah. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now we're so familiar with that. Of course, that's used, you know, the Christmas story and such. Uh, it's, it's the Messiah, isn't it? A child will be born to us. This is what he's going to be. He's going to be the king. Um, Isaiah 11, I won't read it all, but uh, there it's talking about a shoot that will spring up from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Spirit of the Lord is on him. It's speaking of the Messiah. All through Isaiah, it's, that's the most messianic book there is. You can look in Micah, uh, all over, different sections, and it's showing that Christ is going to bring the peace and He will make the government happen. And that's what Zechariah is saying here. He's going to take away the war instruments. There will be no need for that anymore. And he'll rule over the whole world. Dominion. Absolute dominion. And then he says, And as for you, also because of the blood of my covenant with you. The blood of the covenant. Go back to Genesis, uh, if you were to... Genesis 15, for instance. I'm not going to read that. I'll just give you a, a quick glimpse of it. What it is is where God makes a covenant with Abram and he has the animals on each side as sacrificial animals and he makes the covenant. It's a blood covenant and he seals his promise with blood. That's as good as saying this, nothing else can happen. This is true. When you make a covenant back then, covenants were never meant to be broken. <laughs> When you sealed it with blood, I mean, that's it. And so that's what God did. Abram didn't even have anything to do with it. Sound asleep. God put him to sleep. That's because God made a promise with Himself. And He will do it regardless of who we are or what we do. Praise God. You know, Abram can make all the promises that he wants to God, but God is always going to... He is the promise keeper, isn't He? The blood of Christ. He's saying with that blood it meant I'll never violate my promise. It can't be done. 
So I seal that promise in the blood. So he said, and this is why this he talks about peace, and he says, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant, I remember my promise that's been going all the way back. Really, that that blood covenant we think there with with Abram, but but God already has thought this out before the foundations of the world. It's interesting, the next phrase, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. What's a waterless pit? You know what happened when they threw people into the pit? Joseph, for instance, right? Uh, Well, actually, we're talking about there's no water there. They died. I mean, that's supposed to be it. You know, when you're thrown into the pit. uh, Unless God intervenes, right? Uh, well, they're, in they're, Missouri, they're, water shoots up. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's like a Talking about Israel here, right? Okay. Yeah, just uh, empty cisterns, empty wells. Okay, that, that's another idea there, if we may. It's a pit of trouble. It's a pit of death. And if we're talking hope here. I've set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners, who have the hope. Penny, would you dealt with uh, inmates, how often did they ever talk about when they may get out, when they're supposed to get out, or when they may get out? Did they do it a lot? That's what they lived for. Is that what kept them going? That was the only thing they cared about. Thank you. That was it, wasn't it? That was their And if there's a little bit of light there, at least you could see it. You could deal with them, couldn't you? You could talk with them. Working in on death row because they were in there. They didn't have any. No hope, was it? What? How, how do you? What can you give them? Well, that's when you just look at today. What can you do today to make today better? Just be here today. That was that was for me. That's a that tough was, one, isn't it? That's the ultimate tough one. Yeah, that was hard. Yeah. And, and I wasn't allowed, yeah, to speak <laughs> to talk about the Lord unless they brought it up. So. Right. There was a lot of, you know, finagling around and getting, you know, there is hope, you know, it's just not in here, you know, until they would bring it up and then we could talk about it. But you had to get them there. Yeah, Yeah, and get them to the jungle gym to get them. But they knew, too. How many do you think, how many do you think you talked to over all those decades you dealt with them there? I was in prison for 33 years. A lot of people then. But that's interesting when you see that most of them that you dealt with are ones who did have that hope. Hey, I'm getting out next year. I'm getting out in two months. Man, they really had a lot of hope, didn't they? At that time. So I can can see why he would use I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit where where they were going to be. That was a death sentence. And return to the stronghold, O prisoners, who have the hope. This very day I'm declaring that I will restore double to you. They're going to get double blessing. What a great hope. Is it martyrs? It it could be. Um, Of course, a lot of these people, you could take it in a symbolic way. Uh, People that, you know, this generation there that Zechariah is talking to. They had been at a point where they didn't seem like there was any hope. But they they were released after the 70 years, but there, 
really wasn't much to go on. And Zechariah is there to encourage him, hey, we can get this done. Let's get the city done. Let's get the temple built. Let's get the walls built. You know, And that's what he's doing as he keeps pointing. There's more to it. Even immediately and shortly in the near future, and that's what we're going to get to, I think, in the next verse. But ultimately, and of course that's where Penny, you're, you're talking, this is where you would like to get where the prisoners really are at. Here's the real hope. But like you say, you're, you're bound unless, and that's pretty good. If they open it up, you can go ahead and say, okay, you want to know? <laughs> so that's what you're talking about. That's when you're starting to make walls with them, telling them you've got to get prepared for other things, right? Now verse 13 is really interesting. We're going to shift a little bit of gear here. For I will bend Judah as my bow. And all of a sudden he goes into war here. But it's not into the kingdom. But it's, well, very shortly. A few hundred years. I will bend Judah as my bow and I will fill the bow with Ephraim. And I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. When did Israel ever fight against Greece? Around, okay, there, there's this intertestamental period. We don't have the biblical fulfilled prophecy, but we do have history, and we have the writings of the Jewish people. They have their history, and there was only one time in history when God ever used Israel to defeat Greece. Of course, Greece had been divided up amongst, like in four parts or whatever. Um, and the, it was during this 400 year period, and um, Israel had been dominated by Greece. Of course, you had what? The, the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians, then the Greeks. Just before the Roman Empire comes, God lets them do a, a number on them, and it was under the Maccabees. The Maccabees, Judas Maccabeus. He's a Jewish man. His sons, they started to rebel against uh, this, um, I guess you could say this domination of a Greek ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes who came into the temple and uh, made a, just kind of destroyed, made a destruction there and he shoved pig meat down the priest's throats and desecrated the temple and as he brought in you know the the pork which was a definitely the worst thing that could ever happen to a Jew to put a pig on the altar i mean that is low isn't it and that's antiochus epiphanes he is used in the bible as a picture of the antichrist who is to come who will come in to the temple and make himself to be god Antiochus Epiphanes, as far as he was concerned, he was God of the universe, right? You know, his empire. You know, he was a terrible character. Uh, and so the Maccabees were the ones, as they got so infuriated, they, they got people together, put up a, uh, an army that would rebel against them, and they literally fought against Greece. It was like a holy war. And they prevailed, they actually won. Yeah, they defeated Antiochus Epiphanes and the successors, you know, at the hands of uh, 
comparative, I guess. Yeah, the, the Jews have been despised, and of course they come over and, and win that for a while anyway. It was about 175 B.C. to about 163 B.C. that this happened. So take it up to uh, three, 475, that would be, what, 300 years? And uh, so you're talking maybe 350 years uh, this prophecy came true here. And in history, in your history books, you can see that this is what happened. That they actually beat Greece. At least a part of Greece. As it had been divided up into kind of like four lots at that time. You can see that all through the book of Daniel. Uh, as it was prophesied. And so anyway, that's where that came through there. So we were talking, it's kind of funny, we're talking about the time that Christ comes in introduces himself a king. Then we advance all the way up to the time that Christ comes back at his second coming. And then he comes back a little bit to a little bit after Zechariah's time, a few hundred years later, and talks about what Israel does to Greece. So he, you know, he talks about taking away the, the, the bow and you know, the war instruments, but in 13, that's why it sounds so confusing, doesn't it? So wait a minute, I thought you took that away. But that's when that would have been. I will bend Judah as my bow, and I'll fill the bow with Ephraim. And so uh, I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. So he stirred up the Maccabees and, and that army that got together and defeated them. What in the world were the people at this time thinking? That's what he wanted. How does this even make any sense to them at all? Exactly. Exactly. But that would bring out a rage if you realize that somebody could possibly dishonor your God, too. With that little fire in the. Uh, yeah, and with us looking back at it, we can understand the succession mm-hmm. of the empires. And, and they didn't even, see that what the next empire was going to be. Splitting it up so that we can see the because I've read this many. Times. Oh, it looks confusing, doesn't it? And it, I mean, I didn't get the second coming. <laughs> no, now I can see. Is it making that. sense there now? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, look like it comes and together. Then it goes back to that, and I'm thinking, what, what in the world do those poor people think? They had a lot yeah, of time on Zechariah. What was he? They had a lot of time on their hands, but he had time to think about things. Did he say what? Wow. <laughs> now, what he does is he takes a victory there over the the Greeks, and you can see this where it's there, but there's a much greater battle that's going to happen and of course kind of takes us to Armageddon now then the Lord will appear over them this is God this is the Messiah right and his arrow will go forth like lightning and the Lord God will blow the trumpet and will march in the storm winds of the south the Lord of hosts will defend them and they will devour and trample on the sling stones they will drink and be boisterous as with wine I guess, you know, you think of soldiers who are defeating the enemy, you know, and they're like football players, you know. <laughs> That's you know, what I saw. You know, That's what I thought. <laughs> all joyful, and you know how it is when people get drunk, you know, too. So they'll drink and be boisterous. He's just saying that, imagine the joy that's going to be whenever they finally destroy the enemies. They'll be filled like a sacrificial basin, and there would be talking about the blood. 
Uh, you think of sacrifice. You think of the altar. That's the bowls that are mentioned here, this basin, the bowls. Um, and so here we're talking about, uh, well, in Revelation it says the blood will be up to the horse's bridles. We're talking about millions of people being destroyed, killed, drenched like the corners of the altar. So this would be the time just before the kingdom starts. This is when Christ comes back. He either comes to save His people, and secondly, He comes to judge the nations. And so here we see the devouring and the destroying and the final triumph. The Lord of hosts devours the enemies. The Lord of armies is the idea. Uh, so, now we get to the very finish of it. Here it is. Um, this is how He cares as being a conqueror. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of His people. For they are the stones of a crown sparkling in His land. For what comeliness and beauty will be theirs. Grain will make the young men flourish and new wine the virgins. Uh, he's a shepherd here, the flock of the people. He's a king. He's a shepherd and a king. A shepherd and a king. David was a shepherd and a king. Jesus is the son of David. He comes from that line. But he's a shepherd king because he cares about the people. Kings usually don't really care compassionately about uh, the flock, right? So now all of a sudden this king that we've been introduced to is considered to be a shepherd saving his flock. Uh, the flock of his people. Yeah, he's the shepherd there. You know, he's sheep. And later in Zechariah, we'll see more on this. But there was a false, there was false shepherds before. Of course, Christ is the true shepherd. As we finish Zechariah, the shepherd king concept will be repeated. Um, then there, as the stones of a crown, they're like sparkling jewels. Saved people are going to be like sparkling jewels in the crowns of the Messiah. Where's that at? Uh, stones of a crown, or uh, just the st yeah, the stone. Uh, I know there's some other Never mind. Go ahead. Go well, that would mean de definite prosperity, right, for them. As we look down here, and of course, uh, you know, this they're sparkling. You know, uh, uh, you know, he's going to take care of them. He, you know, the double blessing that they have. I mean, the jewels in the crown of the Messiah. Um, so. Uh, it's a beautiful thought, isn't it? All the rebels against God are going to be purged out and there will be godly people left and they'll become like jewels in the crown of the Messiah. Um, turn to Malachi 3.17. Just uh, finish it up here. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts on the day that I prepare my own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So there, he's sparing his people. He saves his people. The Lord of hosts. You'll notice the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. On that day, you know, 
talking about the Christ. Or were you at there in Malachi? Yeah. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. Next phrase. On the day that I prepare my own possession. The interesting thing to me is, is in, in the King James it says, in that day when I make up my jewels. Oh, yeah. all right. So it's tying together. This is like uh, what he owns. This something that that uh, is quite a glorious thing, isn't it? That's something, you know. My own possession or my own jewels. Okay, thank you for bringing that out. Because that ties right in with our Zechariah there again, doesn't it? I mean, what is it? Almost most women love jewelry, don't they? I mean, it's a it's a thing that God is. I mean, you see it in the Bible. Yeah, please. It's and what does it do? It, yeah, it's it, there's something to that sparkle. It it adds to the glory or beauty, you know, uh, of that. It's it's, it's nice to look at. It's mesmerizing. Yeah. And it's they're precious. It's a treasure, right? They're all unique. Very precious stones, yeah. And they're all unique. And and of course each one who is Name. owned by God is Name. precious to him. It's like a jewel to him. Well, that's the wow. one thinking of, that he has a name for each one of us. He calls yeah. us each by his name that he has. We'll get a new name. Yeah, we'll get a new name. So each, not just uh, as a whole, as the body of Christ, but each person. individual, he of course, makes special, up the church, but it's special, special to him. Name that jewel you are a jewel to him in his mm-hmm. crown. Wow. Course, you know, this is quite the promise to, to these people here and to the uh, nation of Israel and to the whole body of believers and of all time. So, uh, a, a, as we finish it out, we're, we're, we're done here. The, the, the last verse there, I think, is rather incredible because when you see something like that, what does it make you want to do? For what comeliness and beauty will be theirs? Right? Makes you want to praise him, doesn't it? When you see something like this, and you know the beauty of Christ and who he is and what it's about, and of course he makes the same way. And we see the prosperity that will happen. Then uh, grain will make the young men flourish, and the new wine. The uh, you know the so what you have here is blessing upon blessing, blessing in in that land. Then, so we we take it all the way up there. What a what a beautiful thing. And starts off with Alexander the Great, and then we see the, the really the real finish of it, and who the true conqueror is. And one, in case one doubts the very word of God, if they would look back and look at Alexander the Great, that was a sign. That was sign number one. And then better, then we can look back at the Maccabean Revolution in 175 B.C., and we see where God made that happen. Sign number two. Believe me, God kept those first two uh, elements there, didn't He? And He will certainly make us confident in Him in keeping that last part of this. This kingdom being jewels in His crown. Yeah. I guess fantastic. That's chapter 9. Two sections, two conquerors. God was used both of those sections to make real meaning to the people. Father, thank You for this evening. Thank You for Your Word, Your truth, and may it uh, truly be a blessing to us as we walk out of here because You have made us 
to be valuable to you as you own us. And that is unfathomable. We thank you, Lord, for we know we don't deserve that at all. And what a great hope that we have to come. And thank you for having that as we live each and every day. Because it's for your glory. Amen. Amen.